This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I want to talk this evening about happiness, but I kind of want to approach it in a little bit of a roundabout way. And so I want to start with the question of what ails us or what is wrong with us. Um, why do I want to start there? Well, the truth is, as a matter of just empirical fact, that Americans are not very happy. So for the people who measure this sort of thing, the data looks bad. Um, the data looks bad for us and for college students in particular. And this was true before the pandemic, by the way, but the pandemic really accelerated these trends. Um, but college students in particular report historically high rates of anxiety, depression, loneliness, and social isolation. So um, it's kind of, you know, people talk a lot, especially in, in, in university administrations, people talk a lot about the mental health crisis on campus. And that crisis has only gotten exponentially worse in the past two years. Um, and, you know, at this point, we have about 40% of college students taking psychotropic drugs just to try to cope with the stress of life. Um, and suicide rates are at an all-time high, right? So they're up about 40% in the last 15 years. It's also the case that medical researchers at the University of Chicago are busy at work on a pill for loneliness, where loneliness is defined as a conscious feeling of estrangement or social separation, an emotional lack that concerns a person's place in the world. That's like how they're operationalizing loneliness. And the Surgeon General warns us that loneliness and emotional well-being are serious public health concerns in this country. So, I guess where I want to start is with a question. Suppose that you, like a lot of college students, feel lonely or anxious or depressed. To whom do you turn for a proper diagnosis or a cure for what ails you? Who can name what ails you? Is your problem essentially material, social? Is it political? Is it a spiritual problem? Is it a moral problem? What's wrong with you, right? If you feel this way. And the, <clears throat> the question interests me because I think we live in a culture where there is no universally recognized credible authority that we all believe we can turn to for an answer to this question. And in that vacuum, we have tended to turn to doctors for help. This phenomenon has been noted by many people, but it's been noted in the most interesting way to me by the Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, Marilyn Robinson. Has anybody, has anybody read Marilyn Robinson? She's so wonderful, you should definitely read her. Um, my favorite Marilyn Robinson novel is Gilead. Um, but here's, here's Marilyn Robinson in an essay called Facing Reality. I suggest that for us, the sense of sickness has replaced the sense of sin to which it was always near allied, and that while we are acutely aware of the difficulties surrounding notions of good and evil, 
We ignore, though they are manifest, the equally great difficulties surrounding the notions of sickness and health, especially as these judgments are applied to human behavior. Antebellum doctors described an illness, typical of enslaved people sold away from their families, which anyone can recognize as ordinary rage and grief. But by medicalizing their condition, the culture was able to refuse the meaning of their suffering. I am afraid we are also forgetting that emotions signify, that they are much fuller of meaning than language, that they interpret the world to us and to other people. Perhaps the reality we have made fills certain of us and of our children with rage and grief. The tedium and meagerness of it, the meanness of it, the stain of fearfulness that it leaves everywhere. It may be necessary to offer ourselves palliatives, but it is drastically wrong to offer or to accept a palliative as if it were a cure. So what is she on about? Well, <clears throat> I think that Marilyn Robinson is worried that we have lost the conceptual framework and the moral and political and Im imagination that allowed us to name and deal with ordinary human emotions, ordinary negative human emotions, ordinary human suffering. So we've kind of lost a vision of ourselves as capable of the depth and strength that notions like wisdom or fortitude carry with them. And we have settled in that absence for palliatives, right? Literally for pills. And we have stopped looking for the cause of our suffering. Um, and so we've really stopped looking for a cure. Now, <clears throat> I think that Marilyn Robinson is a, is a great novelist. Um, and I also think that generally you can think of the great novelist as a kind of diagnostician. For instance, if you want to understand the cultural disease of the petite bourgeoisie in mid 19th century France, the expert to consult is not necessarily the historian or the philosopher, but Gustave Flaubert, who is the author of another novel that I very highly recommend called Madame Bovary. It's my favorite novel. In Flaubert's novel, Emma Bovary dies of her own desperate and unfulfilled longing for happiness which she never finds, despite all of her somewhat comically dark efforts to attain it. Flaubert is quick to alert us to the fact that poor Emma was basically doomed from the start. For what her culture offered her as a candidate vision for a happy life, which was basically romantic fantasies and conspicuous consumption, the pursuit of youthful beauty, and sometimes very shallow religious emotions that are totally detached from anything like sacrifice. All of this was quite literally for Emma, a dead end. Now, also on this theme of the novelist as diagnostician, uh, I'm reminded of the great Southern Catholic novelist, Walker Percy. Anybody read Walker Percy? Yeah, good, great, moviegoer. Um, so here's Walker Percy describing his own craft, the novelist. He writes, the novelist today 
is like a somewhat bemused psychiatrist gazing at a patient who in one sense lives in the best of all possible worlds, and yet is suffering from a depression and an anxiety which he does not understand. That we live in a time of really extraordinary material comfort and technological progress, and yet everyone is somehow miserable or bored or filled with angst, is one of the central underlying currents or paradoxes that Walker Percy's fiction is trying to address. And in particular, in Percy's dystopian sci-fi novel, Love in the Ruins, it's the characters who manage to function in our dysfunctional world that are the characters who are truly detached from reality, while the so-called crazy people, the ones who are actually institutionalized and alienated and unable to cope, are in tune with the world as it really is. Like they're actually reacting to the badness of things uh, and, and trying to figure it out. Um, so there's this idea of the novelist or the great literary artist as a diagnostician in the sense that they may be able to name what ails us. But might the philosopher also be in a position to diagnose what ails us, but in a very different way? Right. If you have read any philosophy and you've read any literature, then you know that they're different things, um, but possibly they are trying to do the same thing. So this idea that philosophy may be able to diagnose us is the basic premise of Boethius's consolation of philosophy. So if you don't know who Boethius is, um, well, he was a philosopher. He lived just on the cusp of the Middle Ages. <clears throat> that is to say he was born just after the last Roman emperor was deposed and the first barbarian king was put in power in Italy. Now, Boethius was a philosopher statesman. He was of noble lineage. Uh, he was himself a senator by the age of 25, and of course he was very rich. When he wasn't discharging the duties of his various political offices, he was busy translating all of Aristotle and writing his own philosophical and theological treatises. And so I think we can say that Boethius is living a pretty good life, right? <laughs> he seems to be living well. Um, however, things go south for Boethius, and he gets caught up in the political intrigues of his day. And unfortunately, he comes out on the wrong side of the king, who orders his execution. So Boethius, under house arrest, writes what will become obviously unbeknownst to him, the text that is the single most influential literary text of the Middle Ages and one of the greatest philosophical classics of the Western tradition. So this is The Consolation of Philosophy. Has anybody read The Consolation of Philosophy? Um, you should read it. It's, it's tremendous. Um, so The Consolation of Philosophy is a dialogue between Boethius and this character called Lady Philosophy. And at the beginning of the text, we find Boethius, um, he's not happy, right? He's alone, he's imprisoned, he's aggrieved, he's bitter. And when Lady Philosophy first comes to Boethius in his cell, uh, he's complaining to her specifically about the fact that he listened to the philosophers who told him to pursue virtue. Um, and this has not brought him happiness. This, in fact, has brought him ruin. 
Um, and he looks around and he just kind of complains, you know, it's the wicked that are in power and that are flourishing. And I, a just man, am waiting in this dark dungeon for my cruel and unjust execution. So Lady Philosophy um, is unimpressed by Boethius's sadness. Um, so she comes to him and she has these eyes that are burning brightly uh, with this kind of vision that it's, it's clear Boethius's eyes lack. But what's most interesting to me about Lady Philosophy is that she comes to Boethius as a physician. She's come to heal him. And, but the first thing she does is she promises to diagnose him. She promises to diagnose his sickness of mind and to heal and cure him. How does she do this? Well, she just starts questioning him, right? You know, it's lady philosophy. <laughs> she's kind of doing the Socratic thing and she's questioning him. And she tells him reassuringly, you know, along the way, oh, that it's not that bad. She diagnoses him with amnesia. Um, you, you merely suffer a bout of amnesia. And so the cure, right, is to recall the philosophical wisdom that she taught him and that he's clearly forgotten. So she's just going to remind him of what he already knows. Um, if you know anything about Plato on recollection, it's all a bit familiar. Um, this is one thing that Lady Philosophy says to Boethius. You've forgotten your true nature, and it's because you are confused by this loss of memory is because you don't know the end or the purpose of things that you think the wicked and the criminal have power and happiness. These are grave causes and they lead not only to illness, but even death, right? So it's possibly a terminal condition that he's in. Um, but the rest of the book, which is Boethius's Cure and Consolation, it depends on how you read the book, but it's one reading. Um, the rest of the book is basically a treatise on the human person what the human essentially is and what human happiness consists in. Um, and it is a work of philosophy. It's not a work of theology. Um, there's no mention of, of Christ or, or scripture or anything like this. Um, but, it, but it is philosophical arguments like to the effect that providence, that there is a divine providential order of things, um, which ends up being very important to Boethius because it's what allows him to make sense of his suffering. Now, what has always fascinated me about this text is the idea that philosophical wisdom can not only diagnose what ails us, but also help us to see our way clearly to a cure. Lady philosophy does not save Boethius from his terrible fate. Right. He is unjustly executed. OK, so she doesn't come in like Superman and just lift him out of it. What she does is to help him make sense of his suffering. She opens his eyes to the reality that his present condition is not permanent, that his suffering is not meaningless, but valuable insofar as it contributes to his ultimate happiness, which is his actual goal. So I want to make a disquieting suggestion, and that is that we today are not actually all that different from Boethius. Our problem is much the same as his was. Uh, we too perhaps have forgotten what we once knew about ourselves. Um, and so we too don't really understand ourselves, right? Who or what we are, what our purpose is, if we even have any, how to make sense of our suffering, what sort of life would truly satisfy us in anything like a deep and not shallow way?
And then I think, you know, there is the suggestion that part of our remedy, but only part, is to try to recover the knowledge of ourselves that we once had. And part of that recovery is to try to think clearly about happiness again um, through a kind of philosophical wisdom. So that's what I want to do now. I want to talk about happiness. And I want to draw a contrast between what I'll just call the classical view of happiness. Classical view was shared by pagans and Christians and uh, what I'll call the contemporary view of happiness. So, but first I'll start with the classical view of the human person. The classical view of the human person is that we're rational animals. So in the Christian tradition, um, we talk about being made in the image of God, um, but that really just means that we are rational and free. Um, so it's something that the pagan philosophers also thought was unique about us. What does it mean to be rational? Well, I think that at minimum, it means that we have a self-conscious, self-determined kind of life. And that means, among other things, that we don't merely see and interact with things in the world, but that we see and interact with things in the world in light of general concepts. So, for example, um, I see a river. I have rivers on my mind because I just finished uh, Cormac McCarthy's Sutri, and it's all about the Tennessee River. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, that's my. It's going to be my example. So, I see a river. But I see more than an object of a particular color, shape, or size. I see more than movement. I see more than water. I see it as a river, but not a stream or a lake or an ocean. I can see it as something beautiful and powerful and useful for a variety of purposes I might have, but also dangerous, right? The river may be a place of memory for me, right? Um, I may bring to it all sorts of imaginative ideas. I may find metaphor in that river. And I am capable of a kind of wonder in the face of this river. And this wonder can be the cause of my desire to have a deeper understanding of it. I can wonder as I look at it, how it got there and how long it might remain there. And this might eventually lead me to wonder about how anything got here, right? And finally, about how I got here, right? And perhaps then I am led to wonder about being itself. The fact that anything exists, for example, why is that the case? So my vision of the river, right, differs from that of other animals that also see it but cannot and do not wonder about it or view it in relation to a conceptual and imaginative world whose possibilities seem infinite. Now, as a rational animal, I also have free choice. And that means that my vision guides my deliberation and my choices and what I see and decide and choose, right? In accordance with this vision, right? Like it's kind of a vision of what's good and bad and how to live. Um, my choices and my decisions carry with them a certain kind of weight. And that is also because I can think about how those decisions impact other people, um, both in the present and in the future. 
Now, the way that I see things affects how I interact with them, right? And affects what sort of life I will live. And for this reason, I need to be attentive to the value of things right there, right? That I see to be in tune with the world and to see it as it is, which is a kind of task. It's not actually as easy as it sounds. And this task includes most especially seeing other people for who they are and what they really are and what kinds of demands they are making on me. Now, I think that uh, reflection about happiness gets some traction when we're thinking about free choice and decision and deliberation. And um, I want to suggest that when we are reflecting specifically about happiness, right, we are asking ourselves about how we should aspire to live, right, and what sort of person we most wish to be. Because whenever you articulate whatever you think the happy life is, that's really what you are articulating, whether you realize it or not, right? How should you aspire to live and what kind of person do you most wish to be? So when you're reflecting about this, you're thinking about the good for a human person, about what it would look like to embody human excellence. Now, Aristotle and Aquinas um, and, and some other philosophers take it to be obvious that whatever sort of life this is, it will be demanding. And this is kind of like a feature, you know, not a, not a problem with their view. The happy life is not supposed to be an easy or a comfortable life. Um, it's a view that allows for both heroism and everyday mundane self-sacrifices. It allows that such sacrifices can be beautiful and inspire awe and wonder, and that our suffering for the sake of good is meaningful precisely because it can work in us, right, to kind of purify or burn off the things in us that are holding us back from attaining our excellence. So the traditional conception of happiness is concerned with transcending the kind of cramped space of the self um, and, and getting on to the good trying to become the sort of person who can really get on to the good. And I think that if your only practical guide, right, to, to thinking about how to live well um, is this kind of thin and meager notion of self-interest, right? Like what's in it for me? Um, there's no chance that you're ever going to live well, right? Because... What it means to live well is always going to mean something that necessarily involves like getting beyond yourself. Um, and it's really hard to do that if all you're thinking about is yourself. Um, and I think that if you do that, you're never really going to know the deeper goods or the deeper, um, the deeper joys that are available to you as a human person. Things like the joys of friendship the joys of study, right? The joys of contemplation, um, the joys of the intellectual life. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, I would want you to embrace this idea that the goal or the purpose of your life is happiness, right? And, and it is your happiness. Um, that this actually is the measure 
of a good life. Um, and also that it's a natural end. So it's, a, it's an end or a purpose that is not itself chosen. It's something more like the condition for the possibility of choice, right? Um, so if you go back to thinking about how your vision of things affects your choices, um, your vision of what a happy life is, the kind of life that you aspire to live, is what informs the choices that you make here and now, right? Um, so it, it kind of sets the parameters of how you're going to choose. It's going to give you the reasons that you have for acting in the way that you do. Um, and you have to have something like that if you're going to have reasons at all. Um, and again, I think, I think it's a, it's a kind of natural end. Um, now, one thing that's really important about the classical view of happiness is that it's essentially connected to virtue. So virtue in ancient Greek, there's this ancient Greek word, arete, it just means excellences, right? So virtue is this idea of these excellent qualities of a person that enable them to be happy or to flourish as a human being. So these are excellent qualities of thinking, excellent qualities of feeling, right? Virtues of virtues that regulate your emotional life um, and excellent qualities of action, right? So these are things like wisdom and justice and fortitude, um, faith, hope, and love, if you want to throw it into a Christian register, but these are virtues of good character. And again, um, if you want to think of it, it so, so here's a kind of analogy that you find in Aristotle. Um, if you think of what a young oak needs to have in order to become a flourishing tree, like the kind that you have on campuses, on, on your campus here, uh, it needs to have things like strong roots and a good water supply and the right kind of environment. Um, if it's going to have any chance of reaching its full stage of flourishing as an oak. And so similarly, the idea is that young people need to be habituated into virtue if they're going to have any chance of having a happy life. And this basic idea is common to the pagan philosophers and the early Christian thinkers, the medieval thinkers. Um, this basic framework of thinking about happiness and virtue is common to both of them. Um, and the idea of happiness as a, as a kind of natural end um, is something that you find in and thinkers like St. Augustine. So has anybody read St. Augustine's Confessions? Yes. Okay, a couple of hands. Yes. Uh, another book that I highly recommend. But anybody who's read Augustine's Confessions knows that St. Augustine believed, really just by reflecting on his own memories and his own personal experience, he believed that our most essential basic human desire is for happiness. Right? So if you read the Confessions, you come away with this picture of the human being as um, something that has a restless heart, right? Something that ceases to be, ceases, 
something that cannot cease to want to be happy without ceasing to be itself. Um, and one thing that's really interesting about Augustine's story is that Augustine is this young man who is very ambitious, he's very smart, he's very talented. He knows what he wants, or he thinks he knows what he wants in life. And he's actually really successful at getting what he wants, right? So he's, um, his desires are being satisfied. Um, but the thing that Augustine realizes is that no matter how much success he experiences, uh, no matter the honors he gains for himself or the pleasures that he experiences in all the various departments of life, he ends up feeling anxious and empty. So he's never fully satisfied, right? He's, all he's left with is more desire. And so this is like a frustrating experience for Augustine. Um, any satisfaction that he finds is ephemeral, it's fleeting, now he's got to have more. And he has this interesting moment of clarity one day. So St. Augustine is like walking in the streets and he meets a beggar. And he just has this realization that the beggar is better off than him, right? Because the beggar isn't crippled by this anxiety that Augustine feels, right? Um and this really shocks Augustine, right? It kind of opens his eyes. Um, and he has, this, he has this realization that the only thing that is going to really satisfy him has to be something that could totally satisfy him. And, and anything else that he's reaching for, like in the realm of worldly ambition, is, is not something that could possibly totally satisfy him. It's going to be something chancy. It's going to be something fragile. It's going to be something that can be lost, right? And again, that's where the anxiety comes in. Um, so I think one of the things that trips up my students when I teach them the classical view for the first time is that it doesn't fit with how they think of morality. So when you think of morality, you don't think of happiness, do you, right? What do you think of? You think of duties, you think of obligations, you think of rules or something like this. Um, if you're religious, you probably just think about being obedient to God's will, to God's commands. Um, what does it have to do with happiness, right? Maybe, maybe you'll be happy if you're moral, but like, there's no guarantee there, right? Um, the point is just that you do your duty and, uh, you know, maybe you'll have your eternal reward. Um, and I think that, I think that for me, when I'm talking to my students, I want to try to get them out of this kind of dualism, right? Um, between thinking that you can either pursue happiness or you can pursue morality, right? Um, and maybe you have to make trade-offs between pursuing happiness and pursuing morality, um, but you're just sort of thinking about different aspects of the practical life or different aspects of the good. Um, and I, and I think this dualism is something that is bad, that kind of needs to be overcome because once you have this dualism between happiness and fulfillment on the one hand 
and the demands of morality, on the other hand, you're always kind of faced with this question of, well, why should I be moral, <laughs> right? Why not just enjoy myself and live well? Like, why do I have to be moral? Um, and, I, and I think this is like a bad place to get in. Um, and it's something that you can see this turn happening at a point in the history of ethics, right? If you do moral philosophy today, if you take a class in moral philosophy, people will present this dualism of practical reason as if it's just a fact right? It's just the way things are. Um, and I, and I think that, um, I think that that's not right, but I also understand why people think this. And one reason why is that our term happiness has been really degraded, right? It's sort of become a vulgar and corrupt term. Nobody thinks happiness is very serious, right? Um, happiness is sort of something that we set aside for small children, right? We want them to be happy on their birthdays, which means we let them do whatever they want and eat a lot of cake. Um, it's about being cheerful, um, and feeling good. And in fact, if you look at the literature on happiness and philosophy, um, that's exactly the account you will find. So here's a quote from Dan Habern. Um, this is his definition of happiness. To be happy is roughly for one's emotional condition to be broadly positive, with only minor negatives, embodying a stance of psychic affirmation. Right, that's happiness. Um, and look, it's not just philosophers who think this, okay? Um, the philosophers are basically just taking this definition from the empirical social sciences, and then they're thinking about it as a philosopher. Um, and what do you find when you look into the social? Is anybody here in the social sciences, like psychology or sociology? No? Okay. Um, well, if you get into that literature at all, then you will find that everyone is a subjectivist about happiness. What does that mean? That just means that happiness has to be understood entirely in terms of individual, locatable, psychological states, right? And so on that view, you're going to be happy if when we count up all the psychological states at the end of your life, there were more positive psychological states than negative psychological states. And you can complicate that picture in a variety of ways. You can be incredibly, you can be an incredibly crude hedonist and just think, we just count up pleasures and pains. Um, or you can be a slightly more sophisticated, like emotional affect theorist. And so you can allow for a beautiful, complicated variety of psychological states. But at the end of the day, you will group them as positive or negative, And the happy person will have more in the positive side. Um, and that's all that there is, right? Um, happiness is a feeling you get that is positive. So now... I don't like this view. I would like to very strongly resist this view of what happiness is. Um, one, because I think that it's shallow, um, but also because I think that it's false. And the reason that I think that it's false is I think it has two kind of fundamental and deeply related flaws. One is that on this view of happiness, you are just looking at individuals, right? You can only be looking at individuals and their psychological states. So, um, 
Right. So, so you, you're just focused on the individual. Um, and it also opens up a very problematic dualism between the subjective psychological perspective of the individual and reality, right? And all that it focuses on is the psychological perspective of the individual. Like what's going on in the world doesn't matter to whether or not you are happy. Um, and I think the two problems actually shed light on each other. So in order to get you to see this, I'll just ask you to consider a thought experiment. Um, so this is a thought experiment that um, is kind of famous in philosophy. Um, but you basically imagine like a virtual reality machine that is so advanced that you really can't tell the difference between what is simulation and what is reality. And once you're plugged into this machine, you'll just seem to experience all and only positive psychological affect. So the machine is going to give you whatever you antecedently desire. It's, it's kind of like a desire satisfaction machine. Um, and so you're always going to feel good in the machine. Um, you're never going to experience misfortune or illness or failure or oppression. It's gonna be all and only positive affect. And maybe the machine can be personalized. So like whatever your personal vision is, you know, if, if, if you're like a fiction writer, like you're only writing, you know, Nobel Prize winning, you know, novels. It's fantastic. Um, you write the great American novel and everyone loves you. Um, and also, and this is an important feature of this machine is that you don't know that you're in a machine. So for all you can tell, you are living well, right? Um, everything appears to you to be real. So the question is, would you choose to spend your life this way? Would you get in that machine? Would you trade like a real human life for a simulacrum, right? Now, theories that understand happiness solely in terms of positive psychological affect, that is to say subjectivism, um, have a really hard time explaining why you shouldn't get in that machine. And amazingly, sometimes proponents of this theory will just say, yeah, I get in that machine. So for example, I once went to Yale and debated um, one of their famous psychologists there, Dr. Laura Santos, about happiness. And when I asked her this, she was like, yeah, I get in that machine. That makes sense. And I didn't think she would say that. <laughs> so I didn't really have a response other than just like a look of confusion. Because um, the experiment is supposed to get you to see that like something might be wrong with this, right? Don't you really want to live a human life? But of course, you could just not live a real human life um, and just be externally manipulated instead. Um, but, but my point is that if you're just a subjectivist, it's hard to say why you wouldn't just get in that machine. Um, but there's another way to consider what is wrong with subjectivism. Um, instead of just thinking about an individual choice, like whether or not you would get in that machine, you can also think about what sort of society you might actually build around this vision of happiness, right? And I think this is basically what Aldous Huxley is doing in his novel, Brave New World, um, which is kind of like, you know, it's dystopian sci-fi fiction, but it's also like a send up of utilitarianism. Um, who's read Brave New World? 
Anybody? Okay. Sometimes it's still assigned in high school. Um, so in this dystopic future that Huxley imagines, like everyone's healthy, there's no disease, nobody um, really gets old anymore. And central to life in this society is psychotropic drugs, um, which are not treated like medicine, but there's something more like daily vitamins. So you're supposed to take these psychotropic pills every day, and it's a kind of like preventative measure. So the pill is called Soma, and it brings about happiness. And it brings about happiness in the subjectivist sense, right? It just kind of makes you feel good. And any, at any moment that any character in Brave New World like feels sad or anxious or upset or even just reflective, the citizens take this pill to put them back in the proper state of mind so that they can enjoy life again. And for Huxley, it's really clear that this kind of happiness is inhumane um, because it is completely at odds with our freedom as rational creatures, right? Um, because one of the things that like absolutely cannot happen in the brave new world is reflection and contemplation. These are actually treated as social ills. Um, they are discouraged and even punished. But as far as the architects of this society are concerned, and there are architects of this society, there are, so it's kind of run by philosopher kings who are utilitarians who can like explain why everything is how it is. And, and it is that way because it maximizes happiness for everyone, which is the utilitarian goal. Um, and so this idea that, you know, we can achieve this utopian society through scientific rationalism, right? That's the idea of the brave new world. Um, but of course, one man's utopia is another man's dystopia. And I think for, um, for Huxley, it's really clear that he wants the reader to be skeptical that anyone in the brave new world is actually happy, right? Um, what is in fact the case is that they are drugged they are distracted, and they are slaves to a present they are never able to transcend. And we're meant to notice as readers of the novel that there is no love in this society. There is no real friendship in this society. There is no family in this society. There is only the satisfaction of bodily appetites, the consumption of material goods, and cheap thrills, right? Um, there is no need for sacrifice or suffering. There's no deeper meaning or purpose beyond pleasure, which is kind of the sum of one's existence. I think what Huxley wants to show you is that it's a sad and pathetic world, a deeply inhuman world, but no one in the world can see it, right? That's kind of the trouble. And every once in a while, there's kind of like a freak, you know, that, that comes up in this world and, and has to be shipped off to like, you know, some remote island so it won't mess anything up. Um, but, you know, one of the things that Huxley is trying to say is like nobody can see through the fog of their own happiness, right? A happiness which has to be artificially induced through medical and social engineering. Like there's... There's something very artificial going on here. Um, 
So I think that if, if thinking about the pleasure machine isn't helpful for you in thinking about subjectivism, then you might just think about, you know, whether or not you'd want to live in a society, right, that is aimed at maximizing happiness in the subjectivist sense, because I think the two, I think, I think they're related, right? Um, now, I think the true perversity here that these two examples isolate is that subjectivism masks the truth about the human person, right? Which is that we are rational and free and therefore social and political, right? And so if we are to think of happiness as a worthy goal for us as individuals and as a society, right? Um, then happiness has to be understood as something that we bring about together, like that we bring about and create and sustain together and in no other way. Um, and, and that I think also uh, becomes impossible in subjectivism, right? Because subjectivism can only understand happiness on this isolated individual level. Um, they can't understand it, for example, as a common good. Um, now I want to turn briefly to Aquinas because this is a TI talk, so I should definitely do that. Um, and I'm happy to do that. Now Aquinas distinguishes between two senses of happiness. Well, really four senses of happiness, but the first distinction that he makes is between formal and material happiness. So formally Aquinas says happiness consists in that which just completely satisfies our rational capacities. Our rational capacities make us unique. They're what is essential to us. And so whatever our happiness is will lie there. What are our rational capacities? It's our intellect, our capacity to know and to understand what is true. Um, and our will, which is our capacity to desire and possess what is good, right? Um, and Aquinas recognizes that being satisfied is a psychologically real condition that has a subjective aspect to it, right? Um, if you really have communion with a good, you will feel good. Um, but he does not think that um, it can be reduced to that. It has an objective aspect to it. Um, that is to say, it, it has an actual object. Um, so when we think about being fully sated, right, for Aquinas, that implies a couple of things. One is that you could be more or less sated, right? You could be more or less satisfied with whatever you get. Um, and that there's something that can fully satisfy you as a human being. And whatever that is, you would just think of that as the highest good. And whatever the highest good is, you would just know that a good life would be ordered towards possessing it, right? So one of the things that you would need to know in order to live well is what the highest good is. Um, and Aquinas thinks that everybody, everybody wants to be happy in the formal sense. Everybody agrees that you're going for happiness in the formal sense, but at the material level, that is at the level of figuring out which objects are actually gonna make you happy, that's where people disagree, right? Um, so people end up fashioning for themselves 
different and incompatible visions of the happy life. Some people think the happy life is the life where you have a lot of wealth and power and honors. Some people think the happy life is just the life of pleasure. Many philosophers <laughs> still think that the happy life is just a life of pleasure. Um, that's a disagreement about material happiness. Um, at the formal level, uh, it's exactly the same thing. Um, now, Aquinas thinks um, when we are thinking about what is going to fully satisfy us, we have to be thinking about something. Um, we have to be thinking about something that we can't lose, right? Um, something that once you have it, um, you can't lose it. It's not fragile. Um, and so Aquinas ends up making another distinction, not between formal and material <laughs> happiness, but between imperfect and perfect happiness. And so he thinks in this life, you can have a kind of imperfect or chancy happiness, right? Um, the kind of happiness that you can get if you cultivate virtue. Um, but it's a bit of a fragile good. You can lose it. Um, you will, in fact, lose it because you're, you're going to die. <laughs> um, so it's not, your perfect happiness cannot be in this life. And in fact, he thinks that no created good could perfectly satisfy your rational capacities. Um, in part because he thinks your rational capacities are infinite, um, and so they can only be perfected by an infinite good, which is God. Um, so he also has that distinction, um, which you don't find in Aristotle. Aristotle only thinks that the happiness that virtue can help you to acquire is the happiness of this life. And it's a chancy and it's a vulnerable thing. St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas hold out for something higher. Um, and they hold out for something higher because they are working in a tradition that involves drawing on sources of divine revelation, which promise them something higher, right? So Thomas Aquinas is not a philosopher, he's a theologian. And so he is also drawing on scripture, right? And so he has, as part of the material that he's working with, the promises of Christ, right? Um, so the promise of a kind of beatitude. What is beatitude for St. Thomas, right? What, what, what is the condition of being perfectly satisfied? It is when you know God as he is. It is when you have the beatific vision. Um, and once you have that, when you are in direct communion with God, not the kinds of indirect communion with God that we have in this life, but you directly possess God in the beatific vision, um, then from Aquinas' perspective, there is nothing left for you to know. You now have the fullness of truth, and so your intellect is fully perfected. Um, and there is nothing left for you to want, right? 
um, because you now possess the fullness of the good. You are perfectly satisfied. Um, but Aquinas thinks, unlike imperfect happiness, you can't, you can't get yourself to this condition on your own. Um, there's no amount of like really hard work you can do to attain the beatific vision. What you need for the beatific vision is grace. You need God's loving invitation to that communion. Um, and, and that grace, I mean, I, you know, this is, this isn't to talk about grace, so I'm not going to go into the details, but, um, you need the theological virtues, right? The virtues that are infused in you by God's grace. And those are faith, hope, and love. Um, and ultimately, and, and love there is, uh, the sense of caritas, right? Um, that is love of God and love of neighbor as oneself. Um, that is the virtue that directs you to eternal life with God, right? To possessing God as the object that is fully going to satisfy you, um, right? And um, one of the things that Aquinas thinks that you need to be doing in this life is um, developing or growing in faith, hope, and love, those three theological virtues, um, because that is to grow closer to God. Um, and ultimately, for Aquinas, it is to live in friendship with God, right? Um, and Aquinas does think that when we grow in this life and our desire to be with God, that is to say, when we grow to truly know and love him and order our lives to be in friendship with him as our true and final and ultimate happiness, then we are also able to love each other in a deeper way, right? So it also brings us, when we grow in friendship with God, we're also growing in closer friendship with one another. And Aquinas says, you know, our friendships in this life are mere foretaste of the eternal friendship that awaits us in the beatific vision. Um, so there is a kind of, yeah, there is this idea that this life and growing in virtue in this life is a, is a foretaste and a preparation of your eternal happiness. Um, okay, so I know that I don't know what time it is, but I have the sense that I'm running out of time. So I just wanna conclude now by returning to this task of diagnosis. So on the classical view that I've been outlining, virtue is aligned with health of the soul and vice is described as a kind of illness. Sometimes it's even described as an addiction. I think that part of what ails us today is that we have no conceptual space for thinking about a healthy soul, right? We have a conception of mental health, right? but it ignores the spiritual dimensions of human existence because it can only recognize what is material and quantifiable. And this is a too narrowed vision, right? Um, precisely because on this view, there is no room for making sense of our suffering 
in this broader context, but there's also no room for prayer, for friendship with God, or for the medicine of grace. 